This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. You're listening to episode 12, The Murder of Meredith Kircher. I wonder how many of you saw the name Meredith Kircher just before clicking play on this week's episode of The Murder Chronicles and drew a blank. I know I would have too. So I want to start this episode off by saying that Meredith Kircher was a smart, beautiful young woman who grew up in South London and dreamed of studying abroad after she fell in love with Italy during a middle school trip. Tragically, Meredith's dreams, along with her life, would be cut short when she was brutally sexually assaulted and murdered in November of 2007 in Italy. And as fate would have it, not only would Meredith lose her life, but even her death would be overshadowed. Here's Meredith's sister. There's not a lot about what actually happened in the beginning, so it's very difficult to kind of keep her memory alive in all of this. Here, Meredith's sister is obviously alluding to one of the suspects in her sister's murder. A young American exchange student from Seattle. I'm pretty sure you'll recognize the name Amanda Knox. I'm really overwhelmed right now. Um, I was looking down from the airplane and it seemed like everything wasn't real. What's important for me to say is just thank you to everyone who has believed in me, who has defended me, who has supported my family. Um. In this episode of The Murner Chronicles, you'll hear from attorney Ann Bremner, who was a part of Amanda's legal team from Seattle. Ann Bremner, I'm a trial lawyer and author, also a legal analyst on the networks, on TV. You'll also hear from Ann's brother, Dr. Doug Bremner. Okay, I'm Doug Bremner. I'm a psychiatrist and at uh, Emory, and professor at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and the co-author of Justice in the Age of Judgment. Both Anne and Doug's new book, which they co-wrote, Justice in the Age of Judgment, has recently come out, and a large part of this book gives insight into Amanda's case as it was happening, but also 15 years later, and what we've come to learn about the case from the perspective of confirmation bias, something all human beings have no matter where you come from, and its terrifying consequences. So the confirmation bias, that's sort of more of a psychological thing that is uh, common, you see it in all countries. And it's the fact that people make up their mind right away, and it's very difficult to change their mind. And if you look at some of these high-profile criminal cases, if you, when you see someone get convicted and then they're later exonerated by the DNA, the family almost never changes their mind about who the guilty person is. They, they stick with that initial idea because it's very difficult to change. And one of the things we talked about in the book is the fact that um, there's this experiment that was done at Stanford where they had people grade these suicide notes about whether they were real or fake. And then they artificially told them that they were doing better or worse than they actually were doing. And even after they told them that they had been lying to them, basically, people continued to have this belief that I'm good at this or I'm bad at that. And, and even when you told them that the, the actual purpose was to try and prove that people can't change their minds, outside observers watching this still continued to think that the so-called good performer was better than the bad performer. And the relevance of that to the legal cases is, number one, you know, the opening statement is the most important 
80% of people make up their mind, even though the judge tells them they have to wait to hear all the facts. And number two, when people read about something in the media, their tendency to make an instant decision about guilt or innocence is even more profound. And people will, even people in our own family were saying, well, Amanda Knox just looks guilty, even though Anne was defending her. <laughs> and, you know, you could look at that as sort of, you know, frightening, I guess. But, you know, we try to take an honest look at that. We'll talk more about confirmation bias throughout the show. But first, let's go over the events leading up to the murder of Meredith Kircher in Italy in 2007. And a huge part of that story begins with Amanda Knox. Amanda grew up in West Seattle. Her parents got a divorce when she was just a year old. In fact, her mom was still pregnant with her little sister. Their split wasn't exactly acrimonious. Let's just say they got really good at avoiding being in the same room together as they raised their daughters. Despite getting divorced, they were able to create a loving and supportive childhood for their kids. In fact, instead of moving away from each other and having to deal with all the problems and stress that comes with kids shuttling back and forth between two households, Amanda's parents bought two homes within a couple of blocks from each other in West Seattle. And life, as it does, moved on. Amanda's dad would remarry and have two more daughters, and Amanda's mom, who was born in Germany and moved to Seattle as a young child, would remarry too. Amanda and her sister lived with their mom and stepdad full-time, and they would stay with their dad and stepmom on the weekends. It sounds like Amanda had a very average, middle-class, supportive childhood. She was a cheerful kid, sort of an odd duck, but she loved playing soccer. In fact, Amanda was so skilled on the soccer field that by third grade, she became known by her nickname, Foxy Noxy, a nod to her agile and cunning on the field. Like Meredith Kircher, Amanda in middle school also went abroad with her family and she too fell in love with Italy. In high school, Amanda earned a scholarship to attend Seattle Prep, which is an expensive Jesuit private school where she was an honor student. According to Amanda's memoir, Waiting to be Heard, she describes herself as immature in high school. Quote, I was the quirky kid who hung out with the sulky manga readers, the ostracized gay kids, and theater geeks. I took Japanese and sang loudly in the halls while walking from one class to another. Since I didn't really fit in, I acted like myself, which pretty much made sure I never did. End quote. After high school, Amanda stayed close to home. She lived in a dorm and attended the University of Washington. But she never forgot her love of Italy and did more than just dream of spending her junior year of college abroad. She worked three jobs to make that happen. I used to say in the press, what you see about Amanda Knox and what we know, which is, as I've described here, mild-mannered, studious, quiet, that's what she is. She didn't all of a sudden turn around and become this, you know, crazed killer in Italy. The plan was for her to spend nine months, beginning in September in Perugia, learning the language and Italian culture, then, in June, she would travel to Rome for a summer creative writing program with only a year of Italian under her belt. You could say it was a lofty goal. Ahead of her trip, Amanda would write in her memoir that she hoped the trip would change her life. Quote, As I got ready to leave for Perugia, I knew I hadn't become my own person yet, and I didn't quite know how to get myself there. I was well-meaning and thoughtful, but I put a lot of pressure on myself to do what I thought was right, and I felt that I always fell short. That's why the challenge of being on my own meant so much to me. I wanted to come back from Italy to my senior year at UW stronger and surer of myself. A better sister, daughter, friend. End quote. Now, I have to pause here and explain that Amanda was also looking to explore her sexual independence. This will become a major part of the case, so it's important to talk about. 
Before leaving for Italy, Amanda had never engaged in casual sex. In her book, she explains that if the opportunity presented itself when she was in Italy, it was something that she would explore. She felt that in the past, her limited sexual experience made her feel like she was emotionally dependent on her previous sexual partners who had all been boyfriends. And in the few short months before Meredith was murdered, Amanda had a couple unsatisfying sexual encounters in Italy. These details, although completely innocent, would unfortunately come back to haunt Amanda in ways that she could never imagine. You know, like she became in Italy the she-devil, the Foxy Noxy, you know, all the, the temptress, you know, all these kinds of things. But she's very quiet. She's very, um, you know, unassuming. She's somebody that was nothing like the way she was portrayed as this person that was, you know, aggressive and would lead a group of people to murder somebody and they called it a ritualistic slaying that she was led other people you know more than one person to kill Meredith that's not who she is obviously and Amanda arrives in Perugia a hilltop city roughly 100 miles from Rome at the end of the summer in 2007. The city attracts a lot of students to the University of Perugia and the University for Foreigners. Both of these universities catered to students from around the world who flocked there to learn Italian and the culture. Now, Meredith was enrolled for fall classes at the University of Perugia, and Amanda was taking classes at the University for Foreigners. In fact, it's at the university where both Meredith and Amanda would randomly and separately come across a for-rent flyer to live at Via della Pergola 7, a villa or house in the center of town. Now, Laura and Philomena were the ones that had put up the flyers. Essentially, they were two best friends in their late 20s who were attorney trainees. Together, they had rented the house and were looking to sublet two additional rooms in the upstairs portion of the home. So when Amanda first came to Perugia at the end of the summer, she hadn't secured housing. And when she arrived a few weeks ahead of school, she saw Laura putting up a flyer and was like, hey, are you renting a room? And Laura says, yes. She explained that they had already rented the basement to four male students who were Italian. I mean, the home was a perfect location, close to the university. It was a no-brainer. When Amanda signed the lease, she didn't move in right away because she was going to visit relatives in Germany before fall quarter started but by the time she came back to Perugia, the other upstairs bedroom had been rented to Meredith Kircher. Here's an interview with Meredith's sister from the BBC. She was very excited about coming to Italy, looking forward to learning more about Italian culture, seeing the city of Perugia and making new friends. And she really fought to come here. She, she really wanted to be here. We were just talking on the sofa and having a little cuddle goodbye. And then I just remember her suddenly crying and saying that she was going to be sad to go, but she was excited to come. And I remember being quite taken aback because I thought, don't make me sad, I'll miss you, but you'll go and have fun. Meredith was majoring in European politics and Italian. She was shy and more reserved than Amanda. But in the few weeks she'd been in Perugia, before Amanda moved in, she'd wasted no time getting close with some other British foreign exchange students. When Amanda arrived, Meredith would introduce her to these new friends. Meredith was 21, and Amanda was 20. September to November was a whirlwind for both Meredith and Amanda. They hung out quite a bit. I mean, they just met each other, so they weren't best friends. But they had a lot in common. They were the only native English speakers in the house. 
They were roughly the same age, and they were both really excited about studying abroad in Italy. It was a really exciting time for them both, as they hung out together socially at clubs, went to a chocolate festival, and hung out with the four guys who lived downstairs in the basement. On one of these occasions, Meredith and Amanda were introduced to a 20-year-old named Rudy Guede. Rudy had played basketball with the guys who lived in the basement, and they partied together. A few weeks later, Meredith shyly told Amanda that she was dating one of their roommates downstairs. On October 25th, Meredith and Amanda attend a classical concert together. Meredith had to leave the concert early, and Amanda stayed behind. At some point, a fellow concert goer who had exchanged a smile with Amanda earlier asked if he could take Meredith's seat. Amanda obliged. He introduced himself as Raffaele Solicito. Raffaele was a 23-year-old student majoring in computer science who sort of looked like an adult Harry Potter. Amanda was a huge fan of the series. Raphael seemed sensitive and sweet. After the concert, Amanda invited Raphael to come have a drink at the bar Le Chic. Amanda sometimes worked there, and it was run by a man named Patrick Lumumba. Raphael did show up at Le Chic after the concert. Thus began the start of a budding romance between Raphael and Amanda. In the following week, other than going to classes, they spent every moment together, mostly at Raphael's one-room apartment that was near Amanda's place. She would go back and forth from her house to Raphael's to shower and change clothes, but they would also hang out at the villa, too. Six days after the concert, it was Halloween night. Now, in Italy, Halloween isn't celebrated with kids going around trick-or-treating, but like most college towns, Halloween is a great opportunity for adults to dress up and party. In Italy, November 1st and 2nd are really important holidays. November 1st is a day to celebrate All Saints Day. The next day, November 2nd, is celebrated as All Souls Day, or the Day of the Dead, to commemorate loved ones who have died. On November 1st, Amanda was hanging out at the villa that afternoon with Raphael when she had her last conversation with Meredith. Basically, Amanda and Raphael were in the common room when Meredith walked in, she was doing some laundry, and they chatted. Meredith said that she was going out that night with some friends. At around 5 p.m., Amanda and Raphael returned to his apartment. They cooked dinner, watched the movie Amelie, have sex, smoke pot. At some point, Amanda remembers that she's got a shift to work at Le Chic. She looks at her phone and sees that she's received a text from her boss, Patrick Lumumba, which says that she doesn't have to come in because it's not a very busy night. So she was at Raffaele Selecito's house. They were, you know, watching a movie. Then uh, Patrick had, had texted her, texted Amanda and said he didn't need to work that night. And so she said, okay, ci vediamo, which means in Italian, it means I'll see you later. And in English, that's slang for like, you know, goodbye. But in Italian, that literally means I will see you later. This is a really important detail. Remember, Amanda was just learning Italian. She wasn't fluent. In fact, Raphael's English was better than her Italian, so they mostly spoke in English together. The text she sent back to Patrick would become a huge deal in Meredith's murder investigation. We'll be back after a quick break. The next day, remember the second public holiday, All Souls Day, on November 2nd, according to Amanda's account, she woke up at Raphael's apartment. He was still sleeping, and she walked to her villa to take a shower and pick up clothes, as she and Raphael had plans to take a romantic day trip into a neighboring town. When Amanda got to her house, she saw that the door was wide open, 
as she was trying to make sense of it, she sort of pushed it out of her mind because their door was temperamental, or at least the latch was, and it didn't always work right without a key. So maybe the wind blew it open? It was a chilly November day. Amanda walks into the villa calling out, hello, but nobody responded. It appeared that nobody was even home, which was also odd in a house with so many people. Usually someone was always home. The bedrooms belonging to her roommates, Laura, Philomena, and Meredith were all closed. Amanda goes into the bathroom to take a shower. She notices two little bits of blood in the bathroom sink. This is the bathroom that Amanda and Meredith both share. Maybe Meredith had cut her legs shaving. Amanda just kind of ignored it and got into the shower. When she got done and she stepped on the little blue floor mat, she noticed that there was a sort of reddish brown stain. Her sense that something was off heightened. I mean, she couldn't really reckon where that blood stain would come from. Was it from menstrual blood? It just didn't make sense. Especially when she went into the bathroom that Laura and Philomena shared, which was always scoured clean. But she saw feces in their toilet. Seeing that, along with the other little tidbits of oddity, she started getting a little bit scared. Even though the roommates all had a very laissez-faire lifestyle when it came to communal living, being neat was important to her roommates. In fact, the only tiff, if you could even call that, was when Meredith had asked Amanda to flush the toilet after every use. In the month that they'd lived together, it was clear that Amanda had grown up with the motto that you didn't always flush every time to conserve water. Here's Amanda in an interview with The Daily, breaking down her thought process that morning in the villa. And I didn't know what to think because yes, the front door was open, but everything looked normal. Everything that I saw just in walking in the front door, going to my bedroom and going to the bathroom, the various bathrooms, everything looked completely normal. So I did not think there's been a break-in. Um, I just thought, okay, well, the door doesn't work very well. So maybe someone didn't close it all the way. And then once I saw the blood in the bathroom I and the, and the feces in the toilet, I thought, okay, well, that's really weird. Um, first of all, the blood in the bathroom, like it wasn't a lot. So I didn't, I didn't assume that someone had been murdered. <laughs> I, um, I assumed that either someone kind of hurt themselves or there was menstrual issues. Um, and, and they hadn't been cleaned up. And so I thought, okay, well maybe somebody ran out really quickly and is coming back. Um, maybe someone went downstairs into the apartment below. I didn't know, but when I saw the feces in the toilet, it actually creeped me out um, because that was just very unusual. Suddenly the idea that someone could have possibly been in the house when she got into the shower and was using the bathroom and left without flushing really creeped her out. So she quickly grabbed her things, locked the front door and took off out of the house. And Amanda called her mom in Seattle as she walked back over to Raphael's, describing what she'd seen. Amanda's mom told her to call her roommates, which she did. Meredith didn't answer, Laura didn't answer, but Philomena picked up. She was in a town nearby with her boyfriend and another couple, and when Amanda told her what she'd experienced at the villa, Philomena said that Laura was in Rome on business, and she told Amanda to go back to the villa to see if anything had been stolen. When Raphael and Amanda returned to the house, this time they went into all the bedrooms, or at least tried to. Laura's room was neat as a pin, but Philomena's room had been ransacked. A window in her room had been shattered and glass was everywhere, and this really huge rock was on the floor. 
And then they went to check Meredith's room. That's when they discovered that her door was locked. This was not normal. Amanda had only known Meredith to lock her room a couple of times, just when she was getting dressed. So Amanda knocked softly, then harder, then she pounded on the door. Nothing. It just didn't make sense. Why would Meredith lock the door if she wasn't inside? Amanda went outside and tried climbing up the siding in an attempt to get to the second floor terrace that was outside of Meredith's room so she could get a peek inside. But Raphael told her to get off. He said, you're gonna fall. They went back into the house and Amanda told Raphael to break down Meredith's door. And he tried a couple of times with his shoulder, but it wouldn't budge. Too scared and keyed up to stay inside the house, Raphael and Amanda went outside. And that's when Raphael called his sister who was a police officer outside of Perugia. He asked her what he should do, and she told him to call the police. Here's Raphael's call to 112, Italy's version of 911. Essentially, Raphael was saying that someone broke into the house by breaking a window, that a room was a mess, and that there was a locked bedroom door. The female voice in the background is Amanda, giving the address as Via della Pergola, and Raphael repeats Via della Pergola 7. As Amanda and Raphael sit outside the villa, two plainclothes officers, known as the Postal Police, walk up to the villa. Unbeknownst to anyone in the house, around 9 a.m. that morning, a woman nearby found two cell phones that had been dropped in her yard. The woman took the two phones that morning to the local police, who did some digging and found out that one of the phones was registered to Philomena at the address Via Della Pergola 7. Amanda and Raphael asked the postal police to break down Meredith's door, but they say that they can't because it's not in their purview to do so. They say that the 112 call that he made will bring officers who have the jurisdiction to break down the door. Meantime, Philomena gets to the house with her boyfriend and another couple. She sees the state of her room, glass all over, huge rock on the floor, her room basically ransacked with drawers open, and she just starts freaking out. When Philomena speaks with the postal police who are still at the house and she finds out about the discarded phones, that's when the situation becomes even more dire because those phones belong to Meredith. Philomena explains that she helped Meredith get a local phone for calls in her name and that the other phone was Meredith's English cell phone which she used to call home. Suddenly, getting into Meredith's room becomes priority number one. Philomena tells her boyfriend and their friend to break down Meredith's bedroom door. After a few hard kicks, the door gives way. Inside Meredith's bedroom, they see a horrific sight. Philomena is hysterical. She screams over and over, the Italian words for blood and foot. Inside Meredith's room, there was blood on the walls and the floor. Meredith's body was lying on the cold, cream-colored tile floor. A tan-colored comforter had been thrown over Meredith's body. One of Meredith's feet was sticking out from the blanket. And when they lift it, they see that Meredith's body, naked from the waist down, her bra has been cut and is strewn over by the door. Her blood-soaked t-shirt has been lifted up above her breasts. There are visible bruises on her arms and neck. 
A vicious assault. Her bloody bra had been sliced off. This is an important detail, which we'll get to in a bit, because a piece of Meredith's bra would remain at the crime scene for over a month and would play a controversial role in the investigation. Meredith's autopsy would reveal evidence of a sexual assault, strangulation, and that she'd been stabbed in the neck. The second stab wound was fatal, severing her thyroid artery. Meredith had 40 stab wounds on her body. The days that followed Meredith's murder became a blur for Amanda. Remember, Amanda is just 20 years old. She's in shock and in a foreign country. The only source of comfort she has is her new boyfriend, Raphael, who she'd only known for a week. She was grief-stricken for her friend, but at the same time grateful because she felt it could have been her, and the murderer was still out there. After Meredith's body had been discovered, everyone inside the villa was ushered outside, and it was there that Raphael gave Amanda a few tender kisses. This display of affection, most would say comfort, just didn't sit right with investigators milling about the crime scene. What Amanda didn't realize was that she and Raphael were being closely monitored and judged. The fact that Amanda didn't appear to openly cry, but instead wept into Raphael's chest, was off-putting. There were many other actions that were awkward in the eyes of the investigators. They just didn't think that she was acting the way that she should have been. As investigators processed the crime scene, they started to formulate a motive based on the evidence they were collecting. Since nothing was stolen, many believed it was a staged crime scene. They also believed that there was no way that one person could have inflicted so many wounds on Meredith. Therefore, they believed that more than one person was involved in the sexual assault and murder of Meredith. In every interview, Amanda told them everything that she knew. She went over and over that she spent the night at Raphael's apartment, that she'd gone back to her house the next morning, saw the door was open, a few specks of blood in the sink, then after taking a shower, a blotch on the bathroom mat, then bolted back to Raphael's when she saw the feces and Laura's toilet. That was the story. That was the truth. She hadn't seen Meredith since their last conversation the day before when she was at her house and Meredith told her she was going out that night with friends and Amanda and Raphael went back to his apartment where they stayed together all night. And in between these interviews in the following days, Investigators observed Amanda buying what they considered was lingerie with Raphael, but the reality was practical. She had no clean underwear because her house was a crime scene. She'd also made some remarks that people just thought were strange and that in the days following the murder, Raphael and Amanda were seen laughing and joking, eating pizza. Another cause of scrutiny was that she and Raphael didn't attend a candlelight vigil that Meredith's friends and family had set up. On the fourth day after the murder, Raphael was called down to the station for an interview. Amanda, believing that the killer was still at large, was afraid to be alone. So she went to the interview with Raphael and stayed in the waiting room. While she was there, she was doing some stretching in a chair. And a detective, who was sitting there talking to her, encouraged her to show him her yoga moves, which she did, and also a couple of cartwheels and the splits at the police station. And everybody had an opinion and there was false information out there and everything else. And basically that whole kind of confirmation bias uh, issue arose because people decided right away, oh, she's guilty. She looks guilty. She did cartwheels. She was kissing her boyfriend. She was shopping for underwear. She didn't seem to react, you know, sadly to Meredith's death, you know, etc. She had an odd affect. 
According to Ann Bremner, this combination of being perceived as a sexual temptress of Italian boys and being a bit odd, even by Seattle standards, but certainly by cultural traditions in Italy, really put her at risk after Meredith's murder. Instead of Raphael coming out of being interviewed, Amanda is asked to then come into a room for another round of questions. Amanda has only taken a year of Italian and has lived in Perugia for around five weeks. Her Italian is not great. And this is where police tell Amanda that Raphael isn't corroborating her alibi. That he says he can't say that Amanda was with him the entire night. During these interviews with police, Amanda was never offered a lawyer, and the conversations were all in Italian. This was roughly the fifth day of nonstop interviews and questioning by police. During that time, Amanda had been interrogated over 50 hours. By this time, prosecutor Giuliani Menini believed that Amanda knew something or was protecting someone. Menini really was sort of a prosecutor out of control. Not all prosecutors in Italy are, are like Mignini. Earlier, I had mentioned that Amanda had received a text from her boss, Patrick, saying that she didn't need to come in because they weren't busy. Patrick had, had texted her, texted Amanda and said he didn't need to work that night. And so she said, okay, ci vediamo, which means in Italian, it means I'll see you later. And in English, that's slang for like, you know, goodbye. But in Italian, that literally means I will see you later. So the Italian police didn't know any English. English, and so they they assumed that that meant that they were making a plan to meet up at the at the house. So it is an example of just you know a little bit of knowledge can really hurt you. Investigators kept repeating over and over again to remember that she and Patrick had plans to meet up again back at her villa. Amanda would later testify that she was the victim of intense pressure tactics during these interrogations which included being hit by a police officer. At some point, the investigators brought in an interpreter, and this was the first time during her interrogations that she had someone who spoke English. So in a way, it was like Amanda felt like she finally had an ally who could help her explain what she really was saying in English. What she didn't realize was that the interpreter seemed to be on the side of the investigators, and that this interpreter encouraged Amanda to remember Remember how she had arranged to meet Patrick Lumumba at her house after 1 a.m. And at some point, Amanda says that she took Patrick over to her house, that he'd had a crush on Meredith, and that she waited in the kitchen and heard Meredith screaming from the bedroom. But the next morning, after the interrogation, and signing sworn statements in Italian that implicated Patrick Lumumba in the murder of Meredith Kircher, Amanda insisted that what she said wasn't right. But they wouldn't listen to her. So Amanda asked for a paper and pencil to write in English her account of what had happened and that she never saw Patrick Lumumba kill Meredith, that what they made her sign was a mistake. The Murder Chronicles will return in a moment. What they did with Amanda, they basically interrogated her for 12 hours, hit her on the head and yelled at her and were talking to her in a language that you know she understood poorly. She had a translator, but the translator was basically working for the police saying, oh, just go ahead and admit it, you'll feel better or something. And, um, and then they said, well, imagine if you were in the murder room with Patrick Lumumbo. Um, it was just all based on they found a single black, what they call woolly fiber, like a hair. That you know, could have been the hair of the actual killer. So they said, imagine that you're in the room, you know, what you would have heard. And she said, well, I think I would have heard a scream or I think I would have heard this or that. And so then they recorded that as a confession. And then immediately after the next day, she said, you know, that that was all BS. You know, I, 
all, whatever I said is, you know, that's just insanity. But then they took that as the as the confession. But the thing to kind of underline is the fact that, you know, she said in some of these documentaries and probably in her book is, you know, you're either guilty or you're not. You're not sort of guilty. And it was something like homicide. You either did it or you're not. So if you, if there's no evidence that you committed the crime and it's clear, 100% clear that that, that that did not happen, then we need to go back and say, well, how, how does this occur? How did these so-called confessions occur when we know if we know that they're false you know what 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 makes them happen and um you know i think that everybody needs to we all need to be held responsible in this case the police should have been held responsible because it's their job to conduct interrogations in such a way that we don't get those coerced confessions so I, i've been hired as an expert for guantanamo bay and a lot of the insurgents that are held in guantanamo bay they collect the information from them using waterboarding and things that we now recognize are torture techniques and that information that they collected was was useless a lot of times they were pointing the finger at people that were innocent just to get them to stop torturing them or because they were tired or they wanted to sit down or they wanted to get something to drink and so it, it just creates a lot of misinformation and is a real disservice to the ju judicial process Part of that statement that she wrote said, quote, I want to make clear that I'm doubtful of the veracity of my statements because they were made under the pressure of stress, shock, and extreme exhaustion. Not only was I told I would be arrested and put in jail for 30 years, but I was also hit in the head when I didn't remember a fact correctly. I understand that the police are under a lot of stress, so I understand the treatment I received. However, it was under this pressure and after many hours of confusion that my mind came up with these answers, end quote. Here is an audio recording released from the BBC of Amanda being interrogated in December of 2007, trying to explain why she had accused Patrick Lumumba of the crime. I was stressed. I was scared. It was after long hours. It was in the middle of the night. I was the innocent. And they were telling me that I was guilty. What did the police tell you? The police are telling you that we know you're at our house, we know that you left the house, and what those moments before I said Patrick's name, they were put, someone was showing me his, um, the message that I was sent on the phone. Che cosa c'è di più normale che insistere? La polizia fa la sua parte. I could, I could understand why they were telling me that I was lying. They kept telling me that I was lying. Ma che po perché poi prima ci ha detto potrebbe essere vero. And later, at her trial, Amanda would testify in court about the experience. They told me that I was trying to protect someone. But I wasn't trying to protect anyone. And they continued to put so much emphasis e continuavano a mettere così tanta enfasi on this message that I had received from Patrick messaggio che avevo ricevuto da Patrick and so e quindi I almost was convinced that I had ero convinta che l'avevo incontrato Even though Amanda retracted her accusations against Patrick Lumumba, police still raid his home on November 6th and arrest him in connection with Meredith's murder. Meantime, Amanda Knox and Rafael Solicito are arrested and charged with murder on November 6th as well. Patrick would spend two weeks in jail, despite Amanda immediately retracting her accusation against him. 
and despite having any physical evidence that connected him to the crime. When Amanda was in jail, her journal was leaked. In it, she had listed her sexual partners, and authorities had told her she had tested positive for HIV, which was a lie. Another twist in this case is that in Britain, if a suspect is charged with a crime, the law there forbids journalists from giving their opinions about whether or not the suspect is guilty or innocent. Since this crime happened in Italy against a British subject, that rule didn't apply. The tabloids and international press are going crazy over this story. In the days following Meredith's murder, detectives determined that the bloody thumbprint found on a pillowcase under Meredith's body belonged to 20-year-old Rudy Guede. Remember, he had partied with Meredith and Amanda with their neighbors downstairs. Kirscher was the murder victim. She was actually at a party where Rudy Guede was there, and he they knew each other kind of casually because he used to play basketball with the with her boyfriend. And um, and then she went and, and had you know, dinner with some of her friends from England, and then she went home. Rudy Guede was born on the Ivory Coast, and he had moved to Perugia at the age of five. Police go to his apartment, and he isn't home. But they test his toothbrush for DNA, and it matches traces of DNA found inside Meredith's body, on her bra strap, and on her sweatshirt. Guede left for Germany in the days after Meredith's murder, and he was eventually apprehended on November 19, 2007, on a train. Guede was arrested and extradited back to Italy. After two weeks in jail, Patrick Lumumba was cleared of any involvement, but the negative publicity ruined his reputation and livelihood. Even with the release of Patrick Lumumba and the arrest of Rudy Guede, the murder charge against Amanda Knox and Rafael Solicito still stood. And it wasn't long after that that Anne Bremner was on the case. But I was basically asked by a couple of uh, people, one was a judge, one was a screenwriter, but both of them were fathers of daughters who went to school with Amanda. And they wanted to help her and they felt like she was being railroaded and that the media had turned on her. Well, the media was against her from the beginning and hadn't turned. But they needed somebody, you know, in Seattle, and Amanda's from Seattle, of course, to get out on the airwaves and put out the true facts. I mean, what, what was the true evidence in the case? What were the true facts? So in the beginning, I, like a lot of people, thought she was guilty, but then I um, I changed and um, after I heard the real evidence, and that's how I got involved. Anne says she joined the team because once she actually reviewed the evidence and the video of the crime scene and forensic collection of evidence that was so sloppy, she knew that there was no way that Amanda had murdered anyone. So her job back in Seattle was to mitigate the tabloid damage that was running unchecked and rampant. And if you think back to when Meredith was murdered in November of 2007, part of the reason her tragic murder morphed into a tabloid nightmare across the world in a way that had never happened before was because the world and how people received their news and related to one another was changing in a very historic way. How people were consuming information was basically turned upside down with the advent of social media. In 2022, it seems strange to think of a world without social media. But remember, Facebook started in 2004, Twitter in 2006, YouTube in 2005. So social media was really in its infancy. And the investigation became less about Meredith and finding her killer, and more about Amanda's behavior and sex life, something Anne and I discussed. 
And you said when women veer outside the normal bounds of behavior, even when they've been driven to extremes, they are not only punished, they are crushed. In this book, I talked a lot about my own cases and cases I've covered because I've done, you know, true crime for about 20 years on a lot of the networks. But, and I've always said that, you know, men are, you know, men are can be demonized when we get diagnosed, but really they also get crushed. I mean, when you look at the cases in the book, if you look at Betty Broderick, you know, I represented her for a while. She was in the Netflix series, Dirty John. I mean, she, I mean, I don't know if you know that story, but she was a mom. She like, she put her husband through medical school, law school. She like had all the kids and he just took everything from her, you know, money, custody, put her in jail, humiliated her, everything else. And, and she snapped and, you know, she ended up being the most popular interviewee on Oprah twice because people looked at her and said, that could have been me. You know, um, Amanda Knox is another one. Raffaele was like an afterthought in that prosecution. He was a co-defendant, but yet it was all about Amanda. And actually she was called the she devil in closing argument by the prosecutor. That would never happen here in the U.S. On top of that, you have a prosecutor, Menini, who believed that Amanda was some kind of satanic temptress. And that given the day that Meredith was murdered, the Day of the Dead, it was something that fueled speculation and gossip that somehow Amanda was involved. You know, the mysticism and, and some of the you know, longstanding kind of beliefs that would kind of form a basis in this case to, to say she's somebody, you know, that, that, that is trying to take away our young Raffaele. She's trying to lead him astray. That she's somebody that it's like the Madonna horse, you know, kind of syndrome. It really fed into a lot of that kind of thought in history. We used to say the prosecutor's name is Menini. We used to say every day is Halloween to Menini. I mean, he believes that, you know, satanic cults were everywhere. You know, literally. I mean, he said there's some kind of a, you know, satanic cult. I don't know where that came from except for via history. Italian prosecutors said Meredith had been killed because she refused to be a part of a drug-fueled sex game that went wrong, that Amanda was getting back at Meredith, who she felt was judgmental about her sex life, and that Amanda was the dominatrix and ringleader of Rafael Solicito and Rudy Guede. Half of people in Italy believe in satanic cults, and they think that the Masons are part of it, just the same way that half of people in America believe in UFOs. So every country has its own weird conspiracy theory. So the thing with the Masons and and satanic cults was not something that, that was new. So just like we may have a documentary about UFOs in this country that people will watch with interest and sort of half believe, they'll have documentaries about satanic cults in Italy. And then Menini was also part of this sort of extreme uh, Catholic fringe group, you know, that had these extreme ideas about religion and morality, etc. But the part about confirmation bias, that's universal. The prosecutors were absolutely biased against Amanda, portraying her as a heartless killer, a witch, she-devil, who was fueled by sex, drugs, and alcohol. In prison, she was nicknamed Bambi. And the Italian press called her angel face with blue eyes of ice. The actual physical evidence against Amanda and Raphael was highly suspect. Amanda's DNA was found mixed with Meredith's in five bloodstains at the villa inside the bathroom that Amanda and Meredith both shared. That doesn't mean that she murdered Meredith. At the crime scene, investigators sprayed the floor with luminol and footprints began to glow. The prosecution's forensic experts would say that these were bloody footprints, which matched the size and shape of Amanda's and Raphael's. 
that the pair had cleaned up after murdering Meredith and staging the home to look like a burglary. But when luminol is sprayed, it can generate a false positive if it's reacting to something else, like a cleaning agent, not blood. And a kitchen knife found in Raphael's apartment matched the size and shape of what they believed was the murder weapon, which had Amanda's DNA on the handle and a trace amount of Meredith's DNA on the blade. The trace amount was so low, the defense would say it should have never been introduced as evidence. So remember that bra strap I was talking about earlier? 46 days after Meredith's murder, a forensic team goes back to the villa looking for more evidence to prove Amanda and Raphael's guilt. And so a piece of the bra strap had been cut off in the back, so basically where the hooks are, and they found that piece of Meredith's bra under a floor rug. Remember, they had already taken the actual bra into evidence. And police say that Raphael's DNA was found on one of the hooks on Meredith's bra clasp. It is the only DNA they have connecting Raphael to Meredith's bedroom where the murder and sexual assault took place. And there is no DNA that puts Amanda in Meredith's room. In September 2008, Amanda Knox, Raphael Solicito, and Rudy Guede appear before an Italian judge. Now, Rudy Guede at that point chose a speedy trial, and he wanted it separate from Amanda and Raphael. Rudy Guede said that Meredith had invited him over to the villa that night. When he got there, Meredith was upset because she believed that Amanda had stolen money from her. Rudy Guede claims that he comforted Meredith, and in doing so, they began kissing. He says they didn't have sex, and at some point, he went to use the bathroom, and from there, he heard Amanda's voice inside the home. But at some point, he heard screaming and left the bathroom. And when he came out, he saw a man who lunged at him with a knife and cut his finger. The man then ran away. Rudy says he went to check on Meredith in her room, and that's where he found her bleeding. He attempted to staunch her stab wounds with the towel, and that's how his bloody thumbprint was found under her body on a pillowcase. And he fled the scene because he was scared. Rudy Guede was found guilty of rape and conspiracy to commit murder, The judge said that, despite his DNA and fingerprints at the crime scene, he didn't commit the murder alone. Amanda Knox and Rafael Solicito's trial began on January 16, 2009. After 323 days, on December 4, 2009, Amanda Knox and Rafael Solicito are both convicted of murdering Meredith Kircher. Rafael receives 25 years and Amanda, 26. She gets an extra year for slandering Patrick Lumumba. Another twist in the case happens not long after they are convicted. In January 2010, the prosecutor, Giuliano Minini, is convicted of abuse of his office in a separate investigation and sentenced to 16 months in prison. Menini's conviction helps bring about a shift in public opinion against Amanda. It takes a year to get to the appeal, But on November 24, 2010, Amanda and Raphael have been in prison for three years. And for this appeal, there is a new judge and prosecutor. On October 3, 2011, Amanda Knox and Raphael Solicito are both acquitted of the murder of Meredith Kircher. But this isn't over. In March of 2013, a different Italian court orders a new trial overturning Amanda Knox and Raphael Solicito's acquittal. So September of 2013, the second appeal begins. This time, the appeal takes place in Florence. 
Amanda refuses to attend. She's back in Seattle, and Raphael is in court on his own and makes a plea to the judge and jury. Io vi chiedo umilmente di poter guardare la realtà di tutto di, di, di tutta questa vicenda e di considerare il grosso sbaglio che è stato fatto. Basically, he's saying, I ask you humbly to look at the reality of this whole matter and to consider that a big error has been made. But even though Raphael was in court during this second appeal, he didn't stay for the judge's deliberation. And after more than 12 hours, Amanda is sentenced to 28 years and six months, and Raphael is sentenced to 25 years. Being found guilty again for Meredith's murder in absentia, Amanda has no plans to return to Italy. In fact, she will say that if she's extradited, she will return kicking and screaming. Meantime, Raphael stayed out of prison until his and Amanda's final appeal, which came on March 25th, 2015 at Italy's Supreme Court. They were called upon to decide whether or not to uphold the guilty verdict. A couple of days later, a panel of five judges deliberated. And after 10 hours, the final verdict was given. The guilty verdict was overturned, and Amanda Knox and Raphael Solicito were acquitted of all charges. We're exonerated in the end. We don't even have that in the U.S. We have not guilty. It's kind of like the Scottish verdict, which is not proven. But they have exonerated in Italy. And that's, that was the finding of the court, the highest court. But Amanda's slander verdict from her false and coerced confession against Patrick Lumumba would still stand. She was found guilty of, of libel against Patrick Lumumbo, who was the owner of the bar, the, the African owner of the bar that as part of her false confession, you know, they got kind of coerced her into saying like she sort of imagined that he was there or something like that. And so she was fined for libel against him. So she would have been eligible to be uh, paid because the Italy will, they don't have bail, but if they, and so they have to keep you in jail until they had the trial, but they pay you for the years that you're in jail if you're found innocent. And so, but she was not able to be paid because she was, um, you know, she, she had this other judgment against her for libel, which is, you know, insane because, you know, the libel was just related to this course confession. Even after the exoneration and everything, they still held on, the judicial system hung on to this crazy idea that they were there when they, where they weren't. It was just, there's no way that they were there. After so many years, Anne Bremner has been involved in many, many high-profile cases, which they talk about in their new book. You know, people are going to like. It's different than most of the other true crime books. They're just, just about the OJ case. So they're just about Susan Cox Powell. This is one where we cover all these cases. And we went beyond that in trying to find what's a common theme or thread of all this. What does it all mean? You know, what can we learn? The thread and the thing that we can learn is that social media is affecting things. Started with the Metanox, it's affecting things more than ever. There's a certain risk to that. There's also a, a possibilities and, you know, televised crime trials that people can learn more. Um, and that, uh, and that you know, our human mind doesn't work exactly like like we think it does and that that can be a, a barrier to to justice but that if we're aware of it and we take it head on you know we can we can get the best possible judicial outcomes in their new book Anne also discusses why she takes on cases like amanda's you see so many cases like this you know in in the system and i think as women we feel like we've come a long ways but i always say you know we haven't come a long ways until we like rule the world i had one case where i defended a company that was all women with one man and he sued for discrimination and i said to the jury you know 
I mean, exactly that. I mean, women have not come that far. I mean, we think we have, but we haven't, especially in terms of stereotypes and how women are treated in the system. I mean, but look at that striking difference between Amanda and Raffaele, and that tells you everything, whether it happened in Italy or the United States. She was completely demonized, sexualized. It was unbelievable. And to this day, people will say she looks guilty. She looks guilty. That's it. She looks guilty. That's the, mm -hmm. that's the point, looks. Because Amanda became a victim of the prosecutor's judgments and weird sexual fears and fantasies. This is part of this sort of Halloween slash All Souls Day that they were doing this satanic ritual sacrifice, which of course is completely insane. But one of the things that we did in the book is we tried to bring in some other cases in the U.S., like the West Memphis Three, which is the same thing where they had this crazy idea that they were involved in a satanic cult, just to illustrate the fact that this is not just sort of an Italian thing. And it really was a, I mean, he really was sort of a prosecutor out of control. As for Meredith Kircher's family, felt that who she was and what she'd been through, her life stolen in the most vicious and brutal way, that was lost. The final verdict, according to her brother and sister, didn't bring any comfort. Anybody losing anyone close to them is hard. Losing somebody so young and the way that we did is, is obviously a hundred times worse. And then on top of that, to have all the, the, the media attention that has gone on for so long just makes it very, very difficult to cope with. I think we all definitely want some form of closure. I'll even just having it almost at an end of the Italian justice system and knowing that that's the final decision um, and then we can all start to remember just Meredith rather than focusing on who did it or what happened. I highly recommend Anne and Doug's new book, Justice in the Age of Judgment. And if you have a case you'd like me to cover on The Murder Chronicles, reach out to me at themurderchronicles at cavalrymedia.com. And thanks for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.